is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. It's pitch black outside in the pre-dawn hours of a cold January morning in western Indiana. Caleb Mashaki of Sugar Creek Malt hands me a headlamp as we put on our shoes. I've just rolled out of bed in the Mashaki's guest room at their farm, but coffee and breakfast will have to wait because the fires in their Soinhus, a Norwegian smokehouse for drying brewing malt, need to be tended. It's a steep hill down to the Soinhus, Caleb tells me as we step out into the frigid air and navigate the farmyard, dodging a choir of chickens, barn cats, goats, and one very insistent rooster who's been crowing since 4 a.m., a nightly occurrence that has earned him the name Quattro. As we near the Soinhus built into the side of a small hill, the sweet, plummy smell of cherrywood smoke fills the frosty air. When we step inside, it's more intense and spicy. My eyes begin to burn. A Soinhus is a Norwegian smokehouse in which the malt-drying bed rests directly above the wood fires. The bed is made from wood planks, in this case pine, with countless holes drilled in them by hand to allow rising smoke to permeate the drying malt. Caleb can burn different types of wood to create malts saturated with unique smoke aromas. He relights the fires under the malt bed while I rub my hands together for some fleeting warmth. When he's done, we walk back to the house as the first blush of dawn begins to tease the horizon in the east. As Caleb makes us a farm breakfast of sausage and scrambled eggs and coffee, we talk about the language of smoke and the story he's telling with that language here in the Midwest. Smoke is one of the most evocative smells in the world, awakening a primal human recognition within us. It can be alarming or reassuring, acrid or appetizing, but it's always impossible to ignore. Of course, there is no one smell that is smoke. Different organic substances will produce different smoke aromas when burned, from the sweet hickory, often used in barbecue, to the sharp smoke of cleansing sage, to the comforting tones of a fireplace on a winter day. When I was a moody teenager writing terrible love poems in my bedroom, I would burn those cheap scented incense sticks you can mix and match by the dozen at gift shops. Today, when I walk into a shop where those are being burned, I get an instant hit of emotional nostalgia for those heady, heartbroken teenage writing sessions because of the smoke from a 25-cent stick of shitty incense. Smoke is powerful stuff. Smoke can be found in abundance in the world of craft beer, and it's making its way into more and more bean-to-bar chocolate as well. There is a colorful world of these aromas and flavors out there, and brewers and chocolate makers are using that palette to paint beautiful culinary pictures in smoke. Once upon a time, pretty much all beer was smoky. Beer is brewed with grain, and usually that grain is barley. 
In order to be used in brewing, that barley has to be malted, which means a maltster subjects it to hydration and temperature conditions that cause it to germinate. During the germination process, plant hormones stimulate the release of enzymes that break down the internal structure of the grain and begin converting its complex starches into simple sugars that would normally fuel the plant's growth until it can break through the soil into sunlight. Brewers want to feed those sugars to yeast during fermentation, however, so the maltster has to halt the germination process at the right stage by drying the grain back out. Nowadays, the vast majority of malt is dried out with indirect heat. The technology for doing that has only existed in most places for about 200 years, though. Prior to that, malt would have been dried with wood fires, and the exposure to smoke would leave most beers with a smoky flavor. And a handful of historical or experimental beer styles still use artisan malt dried in this way to infuse the finished beer with the challenging but fascinating flavors of smoke. The most notable living smoke beer tradition is found in the German city of Bamberg. Here, a handful of breweries, as well as breweries recreating similar beers in the U.S., brew lagers with beechwood-smoked malt, and the resulting savory smoke character can be confusing to the palate. Because meats like bacon and ham are often cured with wood smoke, these beers often remind people of those meats, which is... Not something we typically expect to smell or taste in our beers, though these can become quickly acquired tastes. Another living smoke beer tradition exists in Norway, where homebrewers use a soinhus, like I mentioned earlier, to infuse their rustic malt with an intense wood smoke aroma for their farmhouse ales. The tradition is hanging on by a thread, but attention from regional bloggers Lars Marius Garschol and Mika Leitinen has raised international interest in the tradition, and Caleb Soinhus is the first and only one he and I am aware of in the Western Hemisphere. In addition to the Soinhus, which we'll talk about more later on, Caleb is using other smoking techniques to infuse malts with a wide array of smoke aromas. He uses dozens of different woods, from familiar types like hickory or pecan, to more unusual fruits like mulberry or lemonwood, to exotic varieties like coffee, Jamaican pimento, or olive wood. He's used barrel staves from bourbon, rum, Tabasco sauce, and other barrels, and a wide array of herbs like lavender, tarragon, and mint. Much of what Caleb does revolves around smoke. It's a substance, a multi-sensory ensemble that clearly compels him, a lonely impulse of delight, to quote Yeats, that motivates much of Caleb's tinkering. I visited Caleb early this year for a story for Pellicle magazine in the UK and felt like I had stepped into an immersive sensory world outside normal life. We talked again on the phone recently while he was on vacation at his family's cabin in northern Wisconsin, and in between being interrupted by Caleb catching a fish in the middle of our talk, don't worry, I edited that out, we discussed what it is about smoke that compels his curiosity. Talk to me about smoke. You know, you do the sign house, you do cold smoked malts. Um, this seems to be a particular medium that just really grabs your imagination. Why smoke? Um, yeah, it's a great medium, but unfortunately, um, it's not like a hugely popular style of beer. So it's, it's, I've, I've went down an avenue of, of things that, you know, of, of trying to make these really unique malts that a lot of people don't really um, brew with. But 
Um, I don't know, just kind of, I wanted to do something different. You know, we started a malt house and I didn't want to be like every other malt house making, you know, base malt and, and, and that's it. And so we started making base malt and then like a, a year into it, I was like, we got to do, I want to do something that I can be creative with. Um, and so that's when we started the cold smoker. Once we got the cold smoke going, then we built a roaster. And so then I started doing a lot of really unique roasted malts and, and really fresh roasted malts. And then um, two years ago, we decided, I started, you know, reading Lars' blog and 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 all the, all the things that were going on with Kavike yeast, and and then I started reading the malting and brewing operations that were also going on in Scandinavia, and and, and I've seen all these breweries trying to do really traditional, old world style beers, but you can't do that with modern ingredients because the malt now doesn't taste like the malt tasted back then, and so I really wanted to open up the world to brewers and distillers too, to getting their hands on the the raw ingredients, the base ingredients to make these styles of beers and whiskeys. Um, I don't know, somebody, I was talking to somebody a couple months ago and they, you know, said that we're, what I'm doing is trying to push forward by looking backwards, I guess, you know, and, and I don't know, I see all these crazy trends of just dumping everything that you can into beer and making all these crazy, you know, adjunct beers and milkshake IPAs and everything. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of put my mark onto the beer industry and try to get people to, yeah, make different beers, but not, you know, actually, let's look back and, and make some beers that were popular before the 1700s and see what those taste like. Because everybody always thinks, oh, that beer wasn't good. You know, it, 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 it fell out of production because it wasn't good. That's not necessarily true. I mean, I've had some beers re remade with um, wind malt and with these smoked malts that are just fabulous. I mean, they don't taste like traditional modern beers that we're having now, but the flavors and the profile that comes through in them are just totally unique and totally delicious. I mean, I love drinking them. The, the smoke just kind of called me, I guess, in the beginning. Um, after we started doing the cold smoke, you know, we have 40 or 50 different cold smoke malts that we've made in the past five years. After starting that, then starting the Swinghoose, it's just been a total, it, it's got kind of been what we're known for, I guess. You know, it's not like big volume of what I make. You know, my, my main moneymaker is base malt and, and probably even roasted malts after that. But, you know, the smoke malt is definitely something that we do that's unique um, and nobody else is doing. And, really kind of put our name on the map, I guess, as far as mall houses go. Uh, so you mentioned smoked beers are not the most popular style of beer. And that's, that's true for smoked beers in general. But with some of the specific ones that you're doing, like the Tabasco barrel or, or lavender or other herbs and things like that, like, I don't think anybody was probably pounding down your door asking for those. It seems like there was some kind of curiosity or passion on your part that really made you want to pursue those. What goes into the experimentation uh, with wanting to try all those unusual smokes? Yeah, like I said, I want to I want to open up the the possibilities, I guess, for brewers. You know, when brewers ten years ago, five years ago, even wanted to make a smoke beer, they had basically two options. You know, and I think there's so many different flavors and so many different intricacies that you can get with different woods and different herbs and things like that, that open up smoked beer to a, a wide range of, of audience members, I guess, and, and consumers. And so I wanted to, I wanted to, I don't know, just make a bigger, a bigger palette, you know, a bigger painter's palette for the, for, for the brewers to paint with um, and not just leave, you know, leave them with one or two colors. And I think that's what my malt house is all about is just, is just allowing so many different flavors and so many different um, different colors um, of, of of malts and different grains and different smokes, um, and that's what I've kind of always 
strive to do is just kind of keep pushing the boundaries as far as what we consider um, a certain type of flavor of malt and what we consider a certain type of flavor in the beer. Um, and that's, you know, when we went into doing the cold smokes, you know, like you said, lavender and Tabasco barrel, um, that was kind of just, just kind of popped up in our heads and, you know, we decided let's run with it and see what the malt tastes like. And yeah, nobody, you know, we made lavender smoke malt. That was first, you know, one of the first really weird ones that we ever did. And uh, we made the first batch of it and actually three Floyds and 18th street did a, did a collaboration with it. And, made it and ever since then that's been one of our bigger cold smoke malts that we make we actually have a distillery make a single malt whiskey with it so a lot of it goes into there uh, we've had a lot of other breweries make you know um, avery um, just did one i don't know if you saw that one i don't know i just like i said i, I really wanted to open up the possibilities for brewers um, and that's kind of the avenue that we've gone down you know, in the last couple of years Caleb is referring there to Avery Swanson, former brewmaster at the highly respected Jester King Brewery just outside Austin, Texas. Avery is one of the most highly regarded brewers of mixed fermentation beers in the country, and she recently relocated to Chicago, where she brews small batches of beer at Half Acre Brewing under her own line called Keeping Together. Each beer release is a unique vision that might never be brewed again. She brewed a beer with Caleb's lavender smoke malt called I Am Because We Are. The nature of the beer's release meant I didn't have a chance to try it, but I spoke to Avery about the beer, and she said, The smoke character is front and center, but it has so many layers. It reminds me of a high-elevation Tobala Mezcal with savory flavors of terracotta earth and faint cinnamon spice under delicate top notes of white flowers and mint. She later went on to say that more than anything, it reminds her of a mezcal margarita. Not what you might expect, starting with lavender, but smoke does funny things. I asked Caleb to explain more. With any of the herb smoked, the cold smoked stuff, does that flavor come through pretty directly into the finished malts? I mean, is there a clear lavender note or does that change in the smoking process? Um, so it's not like a, it's, it's definitely different than just like a, like a lavender cause you're smoking it. So you have that burning almost like kind of insect kind of flavor coming through. Lavender is really unique. When you first smoke it, it does have like kind of like a soapy lavender, like really kind of a floral flavor as it ages for about three or four weeks, it turns into this beautiful, like cinnamon toast, almost, um, oatmeal cookie kind of flavor to it, um, on the aroma. Um, and then once you put it in the beer, then you get. So you get that kind of aroma coming from it. And then once you drink it, it has more of like a kind of like a burnt herb kind of thing, um, mm. um, like an incense kind of thing, almost it's just a touch of it with along with that lavender and, and an oatmeal cookie kind of flavor. So it's definitely different. Um, the lemon balm, same thing. It's got a little bit of a, a tartness to it. We've done lemon balm. We've done cardamom's really unique. We've smoked cardamom pods <clears throat> into, into malt. That's really spicy. So yeah, it definitely, it comes through. I mean, it's not like, it's not like, taking that raw ingredient and just putting it into food like in culinary because you're you're burning it so it definitely is a, it has that smoke character to it but then then the different flavors of the different herbs and the and different woods also come through with it too so on the other side of the world in bangkok thailand a chocolate maker is using another unusual source for smoke in one of her chocolate bars natalie sawan percorn runs the bean to bar chocolate company chaconat Nat grew up in Thailand and moved to the United States when she was 11. After attending college, she started Armadillo Chocolate in Gainesville, Florida, 
and had success with it, but ultimately decided to move back to Bangkok to be near family and help with her family's business. She always knew chocolate would re-enter the picture, though, and now she's making chocolate bars infused with flavors from Thai cuisine. For her up-in-smoke bar, she uses a Thai aromatic candle, which is often used in making some Thai desserts. I was totally unfamiliar with this method of smoking food before I found the bar on Nat's website, so I reached out to her to find out more about the process and flavors of this tradition, as well as what it means to her to be able to use cultural touchstones like this in her chocolate. The Thai aromatic candle is generally used for desserts. So it is, it's a U-shaped beeswax candle, and it has a wick at either end. And the uh, candle is made of frankincense, ylang-ylang, and mace oil. So it's really heady, uh, very fragrant. There's a blogger, her name is, well, her, her blog is She Simmers. Anyway, she described it as being quite mournful, and I thought that was a good description. It's, it's just, a, it's just a, such a heady, rich scent. But it's used for cookies and for baked desserts, and it will be, it's like set and then covered up with a, you know, whether it's in a pan or in a covered up dish or whatever. And then you can either uh, smoke also coconut milk as well to go into desserts on top of that, because a lot of Thai desserts actually use, are actually like desserts in a coconut milk or coconut cream, and sometimes it, it's uh, scented with that. So it's not used in any other savory dishes or anything like that. It's just basically desserts. And how did you get the idea to use that with one of your bars? I was sitting at my friend's tea house and we were talking about flavors. She's a master tea blender and she just does a lot of great work. And she was in the middle of, uh, of scenting some teas, basically. And I just said, what? what are you doing? Like, I always, always knew that that I always, you grow up with that flavor. You know, the, these are very, they're just like little white cookies. And as a kid, I would eat them all the time, but I had no idea how that aroma got in that cookie. I never put it together. I never thought to th- ask about it either. And then when I saw her doing that, she was uh, perfuming some black tea inside of a glass jar yeah, that's when the light bulb hit. And I just thought, I have to do this. And um, she gave me a candle and I went back home and I tried it with some nibs and it worked. How do you actually infuse your cacao with that? So it's roasted, it's roast, pre-roasted, it's roasted nibs. And then it's set, I just set it inside of a, uh, inside of a, it's like a three tier container they, like a steamer, basically. Here we use, it's, it's a red steamer and it's used for dumplings or for steaming potatoes or for any number of things. And I just, you can set, I set the candle in the bottom and then there's racks of nibs and then I just rotate the nibs around and then it's smoked over um, for many, many hours. I don't know how much of a difference it would make, but is there any heat associated with that or is it mostly just cold smoke permeating that? Yeah, I mean, it's just cold smoke and it does give off its own bit of heat, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because 
for whatever reason, I can only find there's various sizes of these candles. For a while, I was able to find larger ones that burned for longer periods of time. I cannot find them all of a sudden. So you're constantly relighting these tiny little candles because as I said, I smoke for at least over a, at least over a day, go through quite a few. Uh, what cacao are you using for that bar? Currently, I'm using Pachuap, Kirikan, and Pachuap is on the west, southwest coast of Thailand. What went into selecting that origin in particular? How did that work with the smoke? This particular cacao region, or from this farmer anyway, the, the bean is, is um, it's not as bright and as acidic as its cousin on the east coast, because especially now there's a lot more, there's many more origins that are coming into play. But when I started off with this bar, basically it was Jantaburi on the East Coast or Purdue or Chiang Mai in the North. Anyway, its flavor profile is, is quite mild. You know, it's, it's kind of nutty. It's kind of cocoa-y. There's some fruit notes, but it's nothing as, as piercing bright as what's on Chantaburi. So I went, I went with that. And the, and I decided to roast it, you know, just roast it at a profile that didn't pull out the underlying acidic notes that are inherent to that bean, even though it's not as bright as the other one. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. So I imagine that allows the the smoke character to really be the yeah. the main part. Yeah, and the smoke of this, I have to say, this it's um it's a very specific flavor. Like it's my the customers who love it are generally are mostly Asian, like because whether you're um, Chinese or Vietnamese or in this specific region, we've there's some version of this smoke candle that's used within the region and Westerners just, just don't get it. It kind of just blows their, it blows their palate and they just think it tastes like a candle, Mm. you know, it just, which I guess it does, but so we're so used to it being with desserts and cookies and things like that. It's just, it's also as a chocolate, it's so surprising for the customer or for whoever to try it because they, 
they've put it together. I don't really have to tell them what it is. I usually just like them to blind taste, especially a, an Asian customer, and they know exactly what that flavor is. And then, of course, the added element of surprise that it's with a, in a chocolate bar is really nice. But I also, in the bar, the inclusion in the bar is a pandan cookie crumb. And that is done on purpose so that there's there's still that kind of snacky element. There, the textural contrast with the crumb is that the crumb is quite, it's crunchy. It's got, it's also because it's uh, flavored with pandan powder, it's green. Um, so there's also the visual contrast, which I always really like in a bar and then some coconut crisp on top. The chocolate itself, the smoked chocolate itself is already so overwhelming. I didn't want the inclusions to be any much more of a surprise to deal with. So the pandan is quite bland, but comforting. And then the, the cookie crisp, I mean, the coconut crisp is, is just that, it just adds more texture to it. Can you describe briefly the flavor of the pandan powder? Pandan is very neutral, generally, uh, but like there's a kind of fresh greenness to it. Um, the pandan, when we use it in Thai desserts anyway, because pandan is as long, basically like green uh, grass stalks, like tall grass stalks, and um, we will blend it with some water or what they call a lime solution as well, and then use it to, it's more of a scent. There's never a, a hard flavor to it. But I also wanted to use it as a, the pandan crumb because, um, as I said, Thai desserts are often, are also in a kind of coconut, a cold coconut soup. And there's one uh, Singaporean dessert called um, Lot Chong, or that Thai is called Lot Chong. And it's these green um, tapioca slivers scented with pandan inside of this coconut ice milk. And the coconut ice milk is also scented with the um, candle. So I, I wanted to pull those flavors in together. Um, so that's kind of an, an homage to, um, to the lot chong as well. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of Westerners think that it tastes kind of like a candle. Is there an aspect to it that is recognizably smoky, even though it's you know, different from uh, what smoke they might be expecting? Or does it not really carry a, a smoky element to it? Oh, it's definitely smoky, yeah. Um, it's definitely very smoky, but it's just a different, a totally different kind of smoke. I mean, I would say whether it's smoke like from apple wood or, you know, like what you would, what you would use to barbecue. I mean, you, you get that there's a residual, um, kind of note of something else. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's that, there's the, the smoke element for sure. You get that. I imagine then that the process of smoking those nibs is quite a sensory rich experience for you. I imagine the whole place kind of smells like it. Talk to me a little bit about what that is like the day that you're doing that. Basically, it's just, I have to keep an eye on it. It's just relighting the candle and I'm checking in on it about every, every 20 to 40 minutes. Um, and I, I, since I have to t keep an eye on it constantly, I, I don't have it at the shop. I smoke it at my house and my neighbor. So I have an, an, a neighbor who she's, she's quite up there in age and she'll ask, she'll say she really loves that 
the smell because like it's quite nostalgic for her as well because also this candle that we use it quite often actually the younger generation have really started moving towards more western style of foods unfortunately and um so they're not so into that kind of flavor you know but anyway it's just nice she just thought she said i really love that smell what is it you mentioned that uh, you were familiar with the flavor from uh, the cookies that you would have when you were younger. From people who are familiar with this flavor, what is the reaction? Is it uh, nostalgia? Is it uh, excitement? Is it, you know, how do they respond to tasting that in a chocolate? Well, first, because I usually, if I'm there with them and I will just say, just taste it, they get a, there's a kind of a quiet, contemplative moment and then there's the big aha and i really love the the brightness on their face because they say because it's called uh is what the little cookies are called these little white cookies and they'll be able usually able to pinpoint it right away and then there's so there's nostalgia because yeah as kids we always everyone had them and then uh, um and then there's there's just like surprise and and real appreciation that that's in a chocolate. With the uh, the candle and, and with several of your other bars, you're using a lot of flavors and ingredients familiar within Thai cuisine. Um, what goes into that for you? What are some other examples that you've been able to do besides the up and smoke bar? Yeah, I do like to use a lot of the regional flavors because obviously we we have amazing food here. Our food culture is great but the crossover between our food culture and chocolate is had been and still remains quite narrow because our perceptions of what chocolate is should be is still very confined to western standards um so i wanted to break out of that box and i started with my confectionery products um with uh, caramels that were infused with fresh thai herbs so that's my siam sap the siam sap badass bar and that when I started making that bar, that was the end of 2016. And I was, I mean, I thought it was a, a great bar. I really didn't think it was anything particularly unique because I was just transferring very traditional flavors on, into chocolate, but people were very surprised. I mean, just the chili, just chili and chocolate was already kind of a thing here. That's how kind of slow we are, the, the culture here is to catch up with chocolate and flavor. And so when they realized that there was also lemongrass and fresh kaffir, um, they were, they were just like, it was, I was just shocked how shocked they were that, oh my gosh, this is like a tom yum in a chocolate. I said, yeah, that's, that's the inspiration. And they're like, weird. <laughs> <laughs> Most recently I did one, it's called monsoon season. And it's a three-layer candy bar. It's a layer of pandan nougat, and then a layer of shop-made almond marzipan, and then a layer of durian ganache. Then it's wrapped in a, in a dark chocolate. And I'm, I was really happy with that candy bar because you just, I'm, a I'm like a confectionery fan. I like chocolate bars okay, but I'm, I really love chocolate confectionery, like nostalgic chocolate confectionery. Yeah, that sounds indulgent. It is. It's it's fun. Well, one thing I like to ask, and I'll ask this specifically about the Up and Smoke bar, uh, what story is that bar telling?
We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. Uh, I think it, it's telling a, it's telling a story of of transition in a way, you know, because it is a it is a a classic traditional method um, of of that we've used for many generations in dessert, but the transition of moving from from of moving into Western ideals or being or being very uh, influenced by Western ideals, the way that the commodity market has really changed in terms of what kind of foods we eat, um, how we think about the foods that we eat, the speed at which we eat the, these certain kind of foods and everything. When you, the transition story of moving into that, but I think it's so interesting that while we're an origin country and it's something that we've had for so long, chocolate is still a very new thing. So it falls within a realm of newness and of kind of Western ideology, like the Western ideas of chocolate. It's still a major hurdle to say that, you know, Belgium chocolate is not, there's no Belgium chocolate that doesn't also define like quality. Um, but then when you tie in together the resonance of a uh, very ancient practice of dessert making and pull it in with chocolate, which is considered as new, there's a real cultural, cultural identifier then in that bar. It allows the person to think how their own culture, our own culture can be infused in, in something that we consider to be a Western other, that in fact it is, has been and always will be uh, a part of Thai culture, cacao, actually. We just, it's been underneath our noses the whole time and we didn't know how to process it. And now we kind of can take ownership of it, which I think is a really wonderful thing. Because Nat only sells her chocolate in Thailand, unfortunately my first taste of this intriguing bar will have to wait. Around the world, though, other chocolate makers are introducing the flavor of smoke to their bars. In London, Rococo chocolate uses Lapsang Souchong tea, a smoked black tea, in their big smoke bar. In Utah, the cacao bean project was experimenting with cacao smoked over various woods, though the bars aren't currently available. Numerous makers are adding smoked salt to chocolate bars, including La Folie and Chocolat Latour. In Norway, Fiac Chocolade makes a bar with oak smoked malt. 
This is the second time Norway has come up in this episode, and if you couldn't tell from the spelling of my last name, I have Norwegian heritage. Long, polar or subpolar winters in Norway lead to fire and smoke being a big part of life in this Scandinavian country. And while I've never been to Norway, I hope to visit in the next few years, the smell of wood smoke on a winter day awakens something in my heart, like a song I recognize but can't remember where I first heard it. Naturally, I was deeply intrigued by Caleb Soinhus at Sugar Creek Malt. How unlikely was it to find a piece of Norwegian brewing tradition in western Indiana? As we tended the fires under the malt bed through the afternoon during my visit and took a hair-raising ATV ride across a muddy field to retrieve more cherry wood Caleb would split for the next batch, I couldn't help but feel surprised and delighted by the experiences my career as a beer writer has afforded me, the doors it's opened, and the windows it's allowed me to peer through. Caleb and I continued our conversation recently about this tradition, and as we talked I drank a beer made from malts from the Soinhus. Fontaflora Soinhus, made by Fontaflora Brewery near Asheville, North Carolina, is unlike any smoked beer I've ever tasted. It isn't savory or stale. It's like the entire life of a wood fire was distilled into a glass. Ash, coal, dry smoke and cold air, warm wood, the comforting smell of the fire on your favorite flannel shirt. I felt like I was back inside the Soinhus back in January. The dim light rendered foggy by the smoke and glinting off the antique Victorian glass rosette door handles leading to the smoke chamber, which were rescued from Caleb's grandmother's property. You can hear the passion and dedication as Caleb talks about everything that has gone into this project and the joy of tasting and smelling what has come out of it. While uh, we're talking, I'm actually tasting... Fontaflora's Seinhus with your... You haven't? I haven't had that yet. They are going to send me a case. I never got one. I had a friend who just came back from Asheville and brought me a couple cans. It's awesome. Do you remember which which wood you used on the malt that they got? Yeah, so that was all... That was a traditional... All the Rauch malt, all the German beechwood smoke malt. So they they did a traditional Rausch beer with that. So um, double decocted, step mashed. Um, I think it was... It was pretty high on the malt or the smoke malt percentage. I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was like 70 or 80% smoke malt. And then, you know, a little bit of pills, I think, or something like that. So yeah, it's uh, pretty smoky. It's, uh, yeah. it's funny because so often with smoked beers, we learn to associate smoke with other flavors. And this really just smells directly like actual wood smoke. Like you're yeah. like, I'm, I feel like I'm back in, the sign who's from the day that I was yeah. there and just like smelling directly the wood fire. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so crazy. I, I mean, the, the smoke character that comes out of that, that sign host is, is totally, totally unique. Like when I taste a beer that has that malt in it, I can definitely tell it's, it's from that. It's from our place. Um, and I think it's just the, you know, I think it is just the process there and, you know, just how we're doing it and doing it in the traditional manner and stuff. So I've had beers from, you know, probably a dozen different breweries that have made smoked beers with with this malt and they all you know yeah they all taste differently but they all have that same character they all have that like you said like a real somebody i was just actually i was just with is was brewing um like a couple weekends ago Mm. and he said this is like smoke with a meaning he's like a lot of times you you taste smoked beer and it's like oh they just smoked it just for you know just to get the smoke flavor he's like this is like smoke with with um like there's a reason behind doing this it's not just to have smoked beer you know Um, i feel like a lot of times with smoked beer 
uh, and I don't mean this from a quality standpoint, but they almost could have added like liquid smoke. Like it's just a smoke. Right. It's just in there to be part of the flavor. Uh, right. This, I feel like it instantly makes me feel like I'm by the actual wood fire. Like there's a yeah. sense of the, the fire itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's totally the difference on, on the malt that's coming out of that house, out of that building. It's, it's, it's totally unique and it's totally in your face. Like, just round fire. It's not like you said, liquid smoke. It's like, it's a round, a round, robust, um, different flavors and you can, and different, um, different levels of different things. And it's really, it's really unique. It's really fun. I, you know, we wanted to start this and, you know, didn't know what was going to come out of it. You know, I've been cold smoking for a few years before that and, you know, knew the flavors of that. Um, but then this is just a whole different level. It's amazing. Um, I love the malts that come out of it. What was the moment at which you realized you wanted to do that? That's quite a <laughs> unusual undertaking. I honestly, I remember the day that I decided, you know what, fuck it, we're going to do it. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, uh, I was driving home. Um, I made a delivery to a brewery and I was driving home and I had been talking about it with one of my employees for the, like, he was really into the Nordic brewing stuff. He had kind of introduced me to Lars blog and I started reading that and I was like, you know what, someday I'm going to, someday I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have a malt house and maybe do some brewing like that and everything. And we had an old building that had been basically sitting empty. It, it was fallen in. It was just the foundation of an old barn. Um, it was a two-story dairy barn. The upper level had fallen in. So it was just the old concrete foundation. We'd had that on the property since we bought it and since we started the malt house and it was just an eyesore. And I was driving home one day and uh, after making a delivery, I said, and I thought, why am I waiting? Let's just do it. So, um, so that night I went and talked to my wife and my parents who were all owners of the malt house. And I said, you know, I think we can build this for a very low price. You know, we're not going to put a whole lot of overhead into it and, um, and it'll make some of the most unique malts in the world. Um, and, you know, I think even if we don't make money on it, which, you know, we really don't make a whole lot of money on the sign house. It's kind of, uh, you know, uh, my little side project, but it definitely has brought us a lot of attention and um, helped our business grow in the long run. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. It just, I just kind of got a, got a bug and decided, you know, let's just make it, um, let's do it and make something unique. So you had the opportunity to go to Norway uh, to see kind of the birth of that style of, of malt house and see how it's done there. What was that experience like? Like how did that feed into coming back and actually producing those malts on your own property. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, we went over there last October for the raw ale festival in uh, Hornendal. Um, so we went there first and then spent the rest of the week up in Strordal and um, the island of Tatra, which is where the majority of the, they're not considered craft malt houses over there. They're, they're basically home maltsters. They, they, don't, they don't sell it to the, they're not commercial maltsters. They just malt for themselves and then brew their own beer. So we spent, we spent a week up there and visited probably a half a dozen malt houses up there and spent two nights actually running one of the, um, the signs, um, which is the, their, their oven, their, their, their grain dryer, the wood fire drying. I mean, it was, it was like a, I don't know, it was like a, like a story or a, or a movie, I guess. It was just so beautiful the entire time. Um, so picturesque and the people were so welcoming and taught me, you know, how they, how they run theirs and, and the dimensions of theirs and, you know, how they built it. And, you know, I, I never felt like I was bugging them or anything like that. They were always very, very open. So it was a, it was a really beautiful week, I guess. You know, I, I look back on that a lot in the last year and, and really think how 
how lucky we were to be able to do that. So then bringing that back home really allowed me to learn because I don't have any temperature probes or I don't have a computer program, you know, running the fires or anything like that. It's all by sensory. It's all by putting my hand in the grain and feeling the temperature. It's all by smelling, smelling the grain as it's going through the drying process and being able to be around somebody that's been doing that from generation to generation and then learn from, you know, their ancestors um, being able to spend a couple of days or a week with them and learning and, and running an actual batch with them really, um, you know, allowed me to not ruin a lot of batches right off the bat. Cause you know, that's what I would have done is I would have just been, you know, all right, let's do it. And then I would have burnt a bunch of batches and, or, you know, not, you know, not done them well enough. And that first batch that fall was, was right on, you know, it was, it was dark. It was about 30 love a bond. Um, and we kind of dialed back a little bit after that. I figured out, you know, how to, how to run the fires after that to kind of get it around 10 to 15 love bonds so it's not as dark um but that three love bond was beautiful too like it made a really cool beer so um i always tell brewers that, that i'm working with on these malts is that it's consistently inconsistent so you know you can never know you never it's not going to be the same every time because it's i mean just like with mixed fermentation you never know what you're really going to get um because we're drying it completely over the wood fire you know there's no no fans no dampers nothing like that I just open up windows and allow the wind to come in to kind of push the moisture out and I'm running the fires throughout the night and things like that so it's floor malted so it's you know in floor malting you get a little bit different modification levels in the grain so you have a wide range of modification in that I mean it's you know all it's all modified enough that you know it'll it'll produce you know great beer but it's some is a little bit more modified some is a little less modified and then throughout the throughout the drying process the, the bottom of the grain since there's not there's no fans pushing that heat up through the bottom of the grain gets a little bit darker than the top of the bed of the grain and so there's this whole range of toasting there's a whole range of melanoidin production there's just a whole range of things so it's like a thousand different malts mixed into one malt um, and it produces just such a beautiful bouquet of of, of colors and, and and aromas and and everything so yeah, i can verify that tasting this beer right now i feel yeah. like every sip i'm getting something different from this with the St. Jose itself, you know, you mentioned you got the wood from the barn on your property. You're using the uh, antique doors from your grandmother's cabin. You didn't have to do that, but you kind of intentionally put some of your own story into that building. What went into that? Yeah, it's kind of who I am, I guess. I, I'm very sentimental with, um, with, you know, my history and the history of my family, I guess. And you know, since I wasn't technically going back to the farm, you know, that my grandpa started for us in, in this in, in our county, I wanted to still have a portion of, you know, what he built for us in, in that. Um, and and then with the, with the doors from the cabinet kind of really fit for me because uh, when I'm up, actually, this, this that's where I am right now. And during doing this interview, I'm up at that cabin up in the north woods of Wisconsin, where we're about 20 minutes from the upper peninsula of Michigan. Uh, but I've always felt like this is kind of like a little little Scandinavia up here I really feel um, I really feel like it's a totally different world when I come up here and I grew spent a lot of my summers you know um, as a child and growing up up here on this lake and um, we were able to get some of the old doors that once we replaced new doors in there so we got some of the older old doors on that and so it's kind of like a blend of both sides so my dad's side is the farming my mom's side is the one that was from up in Chicago and in northern Wisconsin and so it was a bit of a blend of both of my family history the farming side with the grain and the malting and then um, the Nordic side I guess with this with this northern Wisconsin the, the that side of my childhood and my upbringing 
um, yeah, it kind of, I don't know. I think, I think the malt house, that the sewing house is a culmination of both styles of my upbringing, I guess. I felt like when I was at home in Indiana, I was working, you know, I was on the farm. It was, it was a very different style of life. But when, when I'm up here, um, it feels much more laid back and free and able to experiment with things. And so I kind of took both of those and, and um, made one business out of it, I guess. So. One of the things that struck me uh, the day that I spent there on the farm, and I, I put this into the article that I wrote for Pellicle, is how many different sensory experiences there are during your average day, even when you're not even talking about tasting a finished beer. I mean, just the process of what you're doing, you're getting all these different smells. And talk to me a little bit about what that experience is like for you and how that kind of drives what you're doing, that even when you're doing hard physical work every day there's still all these sort of indulgent sensory experiences that are part of that yeah it's sensory overload honestly like it's it's everywhere you go on the on the on the property you're smelling something different and it's not just there it as we talked about earlier it's it's smell and sensory with a purpose um you know when i walk into a room and i smell a certain smell i know that that process is going well if i smell something different that i know something is going wrong um, you know, we are very low tech at our malt house, I'm, as you saw while you were there. Um, a lot of, you know, our roaster has no, we have some temperature dial, you know, homebrew temperature dials in it, and that's it. Our kiln that makes our base malt is the only thing that we use a computer program for. Um, but even even turning grain, we go in there with pitchforks and turn the grain um, in, our, in our main, in our modern malt house, our main malt house. We're turning the grain and we're smelling it and we're feeling it during the germination process. As we emptied out of the steep tank, we're, we're shoveling it with shovels and we can smell the, smell the grain coming out, which as it's coming out of the steep tank, it has this beautiful like banana nut um, uh, kind of sweet melon flavor to it. As it's, as it's germinating, it has this really nice fresh cut cucumber smell to it. Um, and then you throw it into the kiln um, and you have, you know, all these toasted, you know, nuts and breads and, and things like that. Then you walk out to the roaster and you have just just caramel and, and, and sweetness coming from crystal malts um, or you're for making roasted malts and you have really deep, rich um, chocolate, cocoa flavors. And then you go to the smokers, the sign house and you have all these other aromas. I mean, yeah, it's, it's totally, it's totally, um, it's totally sensory overload, but it's, it's how I work, I guess, and how I create things. I know what that smell should be. And I know if something's off, then, then we need to check it. Um, and that's kind of how I've always worked um, with that. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I, when I go into the house, my wife can always tell what I've been making that day because <laughs> I'm just drenched in that, in that flavor and that aroma. So, With that in mind, what is it like then tasting a finished beer that uses one of your malts? I mean, you've coaxed it along the entire way. What is it like getting that final sensory experience? It's really amazing being able to pull out the, you know, a lot of people when they taste beer, they're they're like, oh yeah, I think, you know, that's the hops or, you know, that's the, this style of malt that's in there. But to be able to know that flavor directly, you know, during the process of making it and then to have a beer with that in there, it's, it's a totally different, you know, I can, I can drink beer that I don't know what the grain is and I don't know what the ingredients going in there. And it tastes great. I love the beer, but I don't, I can't pick out different flavors, but to know the process from start to finish and then to have that beer in the end and be able to pull out those flavors and, and link that back to, you know, the time that we made this specific malt um, is just, just an amazing experience to be able to, to then share that with people. Since talking with Caleb, I've had the chance to taste another beer made with his Soinhus malt. 
Lock 27 Brewing in Dayton, Ohio, near where I live, recently brewed Stjordalzol, a Norwegian farmhouse ale using Stjordal malt from Sugar Creek. Rather than the beech wood used in the beer from Fontaflora, this malt was smoked over alder wood, and the differences showcase how unique each wood smoke can be. Where the Fontaflora beer had an intense but clean fireside smoke quality, the Lock 27 beer was funkier, with a sweeter impression to the smoke up front along with some sharp, almost medicinal phenolics that softened into fruity and lightly meaty flavors that eventually dry out to an ashy, smoky char. It's a lot, but I loved it. In Somerville, Massachusetts, on the west side of Boston, Eric Parks of Somerville Chocolate further illustrates the uniqueness of different wood smokes with an applewood-smoked chocolate bar. I reached out to him to ask him about the process and ingredients for this unique creation. I have a love of smoked foods, just going back forever. And that was actually one of my first ventures in chocolate after I was able to get a halfway decent bar. I thought, this is great, let's get smoke in this thing. And so I took out, I have a one of those big green eggs, tried everything. I tried roasting in an old cast iron wood stove. And I've been messing around with that. This That recipe has been pretty much set for a number of years where it's fun to roast cacao over fire and get the flavor that way. It's just really hard to manage the quality control because cacao generally wants a more precise roast temperature. I think there's a guy in Utah who might be doing something where he actually roasts his cacao over um, fire, like mesquite and things like that. I have not tried his stuff. So that that is um, something I've been pursuing carefully. I've tried different woods, pecan and Pacific alder. Um, the apple I just love because it's New England and all that. And it has a little bit, to me, a little more punch than some of the others. Pecan I was also successful with, but it I was a little nervous about the allergens. I wasn't sure if it's officially an allergen at that state or not. It is a nut wood. And what I do with that is I um, smoke the nibs. So I roast it first, break it into nibs, and then I take it outside and smoke it. It's a very delicate process, though, because you you can easily make it too much, like a Duraflame log kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a really gentle smoke. And so I, have, I kind of back it up and blend it with a certain amount of unsmoked chocolate at the end, too, to kind of bring it back some. Because it's not, it's also a little polarizing. People generally love it. Some people are just repulsed by the idea. So, it's, you know, I always tell people you can love it or you can hate it and you're in good company either way. Part of the fun is, is trying that kind of stuff. Is, it, is the flavor profile on that one sort of just broadly wood smoke or do you get a particular character from the applewood? There is a character from the applewood. It's tough for me to come up with a flavor descriptor because it's so personal. I, so to back up on that, I paired that with a Dominican cacao that is, already has a fairly fruity edge to it, kind of like the Dominican cacao in general, a little bit more bright and fruity and robust that way. And the applewood I chose because it's smoother, it's sweeter in feel. It doesn't have any of the acridness of mesquite or even oak. Some of those can get a little bit too edgy for some. So it's sort of like a team kind of like wood smoke 101 kind of thing like that. I have tried others and I would say that you don't get as much of the difference in flavor in the chocolate as you would in, in something else like a rack of ribs where it spins this nuke for five hours in the smoke. It's really more about what's not there than what is there with the applewood I think. 
This applewood smoked bar is a fascinating flavor journey with gently funky and fall-like wood smoke aromas and notes of roasted and slightly overripe orchard fruit that dovetail beautifully with the subtle berry undertones of the Dominican cacao. Definitely check this bar out if you have the chance. Eric actually produces his chocolate in a brewery, and we'll hear more from him about this partnership in another episode soon. The smell of smoke seeps deep into our brains and teases out ancestral memories from a time when fire played a bigger role in our daily lives as a species. Most of us don't use it as often now, but we haven't lost our sensory connection to these emotionally potent aromas. I grew up obsessed with the comic Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson and still read back through it often. There's one particular strip in which the titular characters are walking in the snow, Calvin, a young boy, says, Mmm, someone's having a fire. I love the smell of a fire on a cold winter day. Isn't it strange how smells are so evocative, but we can't describe them? Hobbes, a tiger, says, I don't know, that fire has a snorky, brambish smell. It's a little brunky, but the low humidity affects that. To this day, whenever I smell wood smoke in the autumn or winter, I think of those invented words and smile, and they've made it into a handful of tasting notes in my notebook over the years. Seek out some beers or chocolates with smoked ingredients. Even if you think you know smoke, you'll be surprised how those aromas in a new sensory context can tug at the corners of your brain and allow you to rediscover smoke in all its snorky, brambish, brunky glory. You can learn more about my guests and their businesses, Caleb Mishaki of Sugar Creek Malt, Natalie Sawanpercorn of Chocolate, and Eric Parks of Somerville Chocolate in the show notes. The music for this episode was performed by my friend Anna P.S. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at her website, AnnaPSMusic.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Mm-hmm.